And so today we're turning to chapter 7, verses 22 through 28, but uh, I can't read you the whole thing of chapter 7, but we're going to be covering the content of all of chapter 7, but I'm reading 22 through 28, Uh, and let me do that for us now. The author says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens." He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, we mentioned earlier in the series, um, he's writing to Jewish Christians in the first century uh, to show them how Jesus, the Messiah, has fulfilled the entire Old Testament. Uh, We say around here that we believe that the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing forward in shadows and types uh, and so forth. And, and while the imagery may be fuzzy, you can see if you follow the entire story of the Old Testament that it indeed is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. The New Testament, of course, is pointing back to Christ as Messiah, but also forward to his, his return. He wants them to know and us to know that by looking to Jesus as Messiah, they are not rejecting the Old Covenant. The promises and covenants made to Abraham and made to David and and Moses and the like. But instead, by looking to Jesus as the Messiah, they're actually being faithful to the Old Testament. And they're seeing Christ as the Messiah and the fulfillment of all those promises. And yet, they're being so tempted to fall away from their faith in Jesus as Messiah because of the enormous cultural pressure they were under. Imagine, for thousands of years, the Hebrew people have been... uh, seeing you know the old testament is their primary thing and and the sacrifices and the priesthood and so forth and all of a sudden there's a new wrinkle in the story about jesus the messiah it'd be very unsettling but he's writing to them to encourage them to keep in the faith hebrews 7 our our long chapter today takes us on an interesting journey and a mysterious one in a way Uh, and it takes us through a journey to the old testament priesthood and ultimately pointing us Uh, towards a greater reality that Jesus is the true and better priest and he's actually the true and better priesthood and even the true and better sacrifice himself. A priest is an intercessor, a mediator, an advocate. And so what? (laughs) If I asked you this morning, like, list some of your top felt needs right now, the things that you feel like you need the most in life, I, I think... No one in this room would say, I need a great priest. And and, and in spite of the fact that probably none of us would say that, the reality is we actually profoundly need a great priest. We need Jesus, of course, as our high priest. 
But having a true and greater priest, it may actually be one of the greatest needs that we have. The thing that I know I need, and I believe all of us need, is to have someone in our life who has spiritual authority and is able to declare the good news of the gospel over us in a way. In order to tell us what is true for us in Jesus, especially in the moments in life when we are struggling to believe that it's true. And can you be honest with yourself that there are many moments in life where you struggle to believe that it's true for you? So many people can believe that it's true for others, for the world even, but so difficult to believe that it's true for you. We need counselors. We need advocates. We need people who can stand in the gap of life and declare over us good news and remind us of who we are in Jesus. About 19 years ago, um, we were in the throes of planting New Valley. it was a long time ago, and so in many ways it's hard to remember, but there are, some, there are some times and moments in those early years where I can just remember being overwhelmed with pressure and uh, feeling like, is there any way this church is going to make it, to be honest? Uh, we were a ragtag bunch. Some of you were there. If you were there, would you raise your hand like in the early days, first couple, first couple of years? Yeah. Okay. I see those hands. <laughs> Well, you were a ragtag bunch. We were a ragtag bunch. It was a, we were small in number. Uh, we were extraordinarily young as a church. It felt like financially we were never going to make it. It felt like nobody in the valley actually cared that we were there except the few of us that were there. And it was an enormous amount of pressure. And I felt it. I felt it tremendously. And um, I, I, in that moment of just feeling despair and overwhelmed and was crying out to God in so many ways. I got invited to a special gathering of church planners in our denomination where there was going to be a speaker, and his name was Dick Kaufman. And Dick was a really well-known pastor in our denomination. Um, he had uh, served as the um, he'd served as executive pastor for Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Tim Keller's church in New York City. In fact, Tim and his in his biography, mentioned that Dick was one of the primary reasons that they got organized and actually the church was able to grow under his leadership as executive pastor. He left Redeemer later and planted a church in San Diego called Harbor, and it became a whole network of churches. And he was speaking at this conference, and I am dying inside. <laughs> I feel completely inadequate, and I feel like we're going nowhere. And I am sitting there, and as he's speaking, he was soft spoken. He was humble, he was very organized, frankly, not your typical church planner. But during his talk, I I just became overwhelmed with emotion. I started weeping, feeling like almost uncontrollably. And when when it was over, I felt compelled to go talk to him and just kind of share, like, you know, would you pray for me? And I did, and I went to him, and he um, humbly just was like, let me pray for you, Scott. And then afterwards... He said, look, I gather with some church planners on a monthly basis in San Diego, and you're welcome anytime. And you just let me know when you're coming, and I'll make time for you, and we'll talk, and I'll share anything we have with you. And I did. I went to be with him a couple times in San Diego. And, and to have someone like Dick Kaufman, this godly man, sort of stand in the gap for me and say, brother, it's going to be okay. And even if the church doesn't make it, it's going to be okay. Because you're Christ's son, and the gospel's true of you, and true for you. And he spoke good things over me, and kind of calmed me down, and enabled me just to go, it's going to be all right, you know. I can hang in there. He was a pastor and a priest to me in a time when I needed it desperately. And I can't tell you how many times I've called good friends 
to confess sin or tell them about something in my life or tell them. And, and when, when you confess sin to another brother or sister in Christ and they stop at the end and pray for you and say, your sins are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing like that. To have another, a priest, a pastor, a fellow brother or sister share, you're forgiven. Remember, you're forgiven in Jesus. We need that so badly. And today we're going to see three things from our passage. Melchizedek, the mysterious priest. You may wonder who he is. Second, the imperfect and impermanent priesthood. And then third, a priest like no other. Let's talk about Melchizedek, the, the mysterious priest. Um, if you haven't noticed, if you're reading your Bible, every once in a while, this name pops up, but almost nobody knows who this person is. Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek in the line or the order of Melchizedek. He's mentioned in chapter five in, in Hebrews. He's mentioned twice in chapter six, and now he's mentioned a bunch in the first part of chapter seven. He's only, interestingly, Briefly mentioned in the entire Bible in Genesis 14 and then later in Psalm 110. But the author turns our attention to him because Hebrews sees in Melchizedek a sign or a shadow or a type that is pointing us to Jesus. Melchizedek, as I said, is mentioned in Genesis 14 uh, where uh, it, it describes a battle where Abraham goes to battle to rescue his nephew Lot by de defeating four uh, independent kingdoms at, with only 318 men at his side. And after this battle and after having got, received Lot back, this mysterious character named Melchizedek shows up. He's the king of Salem. The king of Salem shows up. And it says of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that he is a priest of God most high, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, this is really strange if you know your Bible. And let me explain why. Uh, and by the way, this is the first time in the entire Bible that any man is called a priest, ever. And it's mysterious because Israel, if you remember, is just beginning right then and there. Abraham is the first Hebrew. He and his wife and their descendants make the, the first lineage of the Israelite people. And they are hundreds of years prior uh, to the priesthood and the law and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifice and so forth. And so we're not supposed to really have priests of the one true God at this point because there's only one Hebrew and that's Abraham. But all of a sudden, mysteriously, this man who is a king and who is a priest, pops up. Melchizedek, his, word, his name in Hebrew literally means righteous king, and he is the king of Salem, which is the Hebrew word for shalom or peace. So he's a king of peace, and he's a, a king of righteousness. And the interesting thing is, after, after Lot is brought back and, and he's safe, um, they celebrate and then Melchizedek just shows up and he, he offers a thanksgiving of bread and wine over Abraham as a blessing. Bread, wine, king of peace, king of righteousness. You can, see, you can see why Hebrews is drawing a line between Melchizedek and Jesus. Can you not? Absolutely. But he wasn't the first one to do so, the author of Hebrews. It started with King David, who made that direct connection himself. In Psalm 110, it says this in verse 1. 
The Lord says to my Lord, so God the Father says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 4 it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Verse 1 shows us that David is talking about the Messiah who will sit at the right hand of God. And verse 4 says that the Messiah will be a priest forever in this order of Melchizedek. Different from the Levitical priesthood. In what way that priesthood will go forever. Implying, in a way, that the Levitical priesthood, the one of the Aaronic uh, tribe, the Levitic tribe, is is impermanent. It's not going to last In 7, verses 1 through 10, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, Hebrews makes the case that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, even, because he tithed to Melchizedek, and he is greater, Melchizedek is, than the Levitical priest. So let's look at the next point. The imperfect and impermanent priesthood, verses 11 through 19 of our passage. And I'm going to read a section of that from verse 11. It says, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? This entire discussion about Melchizedek was to show that the Old Testament itself was pointing to something or someone uh, more lasting and greater than the priesthood. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and and greater than Levi. And so Hebrews is is calling us to, to think with our imagination. So how much greater is the one who is greater than Melchizedek? If Melchizedek is this great, then how much greater is Jesus, our true high priest, It says in verses 18 through 19, uh, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, if you read the Old Testament... Uh, all the way through, and if you study the Old Testament, it, it's a, it is a beautiful story, and it's, there's a cohesion to the story. But one of the things that's fascinating to me, and it's been interesting to me for a long time, is this. How patient God is to tell a story. He could have just said, hey, people sinned in Genesis 3. I need to provide sacrifice. I'm going to send my son. He will die for their sins. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he begins with one man, Abraham. He creates a whole people, laws, rules, and regulations. But what the takeaway is after reading all of it and also interpreting it through the lens of the New Testament, what you see is that the law, the commandments, the sacrifices, the priesthood actually never saved anyone. They were all pointing to Jesus, that he would be the full and final salvation. They were types, shadows. And it's not to say that they are not saved, the Hebrews, in the Old Testament. They are, but they're saved through the Messiah, through Jesus. They're saved through the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The law, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, they were weak. They were God's will, but 
intentionally. They weren't meant to be the thing themselves. They were meant to point and to point us to the thing, the person himself, Jesus. And that was always God's plan. This was no mistake. They were never meant to be the perfection, but to point us to the perfection. And finally, let's look at the priest like no other, which of course is Jesus, the Messiah. We read this just a moment ago, but let me read it again. The former priests in the Levitical priesthood were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Of course, they're human. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. There's so much in this passage. His priesthood is permanent. He, he rose from the dead. He continues forever. He was eternal, co-eternal with God the Father and the Spirit. He is able to save his people to the utmost, it says. The Old Testament uh, in the Old Testament priesthood and sacrifices, people were ceremonially cleansed. They were ritually cleansed, but they weren't able to be cleansed of their sins entirely. It's the difference between religion and the gospel in a sense. Like You can have an outward cleansing, but Jesus is the one only who can cleanse us from the inside out. These human priests, they were many in number. They were imperfect. They were like you and me. Humans who are going to die. Sinful, broken, imperfect, impermanent. But Jesus, Hebrews says, is singular, perfect, permanent, and he continues forever. What a priest. And then beautifully it says this, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through, to God through him. His priesthood is perfect, and so his salvation is perfect. And he can draw us near to God, is what he says. Which is exactly what a priest is supposed to do. A priest is supposed to be an intercessor, a, a mediator, someone who can take you, who's not worthy to be in the presence of God, and bring you to God. He, he was the person that could go into the Holy of Holies and live, and, and, and be a mediator between God and the people of God. But they weren't able to accomplish it because of the weakness and frailty of human beings. But Jesus is able. How does he draw us near to God? He says beautifully in this passage that it is through intercession. And, and I love the beauty of this. He, will, he always lives. He does always live and he always has. But he always lives to do what? To make intercession for those who draw near to God. He makes intercession for those who draw near to God. And I want you to be careful to not improperly think the way that this means. You may be tempted to hear that it's Jesus' job uh, to stand in the gap between you and the Father in the sense that the Father is displeased with you and is ready to come at you with judgment. But Jesus stands in the gap and says, I intercede. Lord, have mercy on them. Please don't do it. I know. I know you're coming at them. I know you want to bring judgment on them, but don't do it, Lord. You would be wrong to conceive of his intercession in that way. 
Father, I know you want to smite them, but I'm interceding on their behalf. Don't do it. It sounds in a way like that's what's happening, but that is not what's happening. Paul beautifully explains this in Romans 8. When he says this, what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn then? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. You see, God the Father, it was his plan to send the Son. So whatever this interceding is between Jesus and the Father, it is not one of saying, have mercy, Lord. Don't do what you want to do. It's not holding back God's judgment because it was the Father's will. He sent the Son. He, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. Who can bring a charge? Instead, the interceding is Jesus crying out what is just and what is true. And I think in a way it's a Trinitarian celebration in heaven saying, look what God has done to redeem people like you and me. It's not a cry for mercy. Instead, it's a cry for righteousness. And this is what I mean. Jesus was just. He is our Savior. It would be unjust for God to punish sinners who are now residing under the righteousness of Christ's robes. God cannot judge us any longer because in Jesus we are robed in his righteousness if you are truly born of the Spirit. And so it is his justice that Jesus is declaring. But again, it's not just Jesus interceding. In a sense, it is the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a chorus of intercession for the redeemed. Amen? Romans 8 says this. The Spirit helps in our weakness. For when we do not know what to pray as we ought, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches hearts know what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know what this tells me is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are serving us sheep of, of, of God in such a way that God is interceding for us, praying for us, covering us with righteousness, telling us good things. It, when you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit himself prays over you. That is what Paul says. Can you believe that? When you're at a loss for words, when you are grieving at an extent you didn't know you could grieve, the Holy Spirit himself is standing in the gap and praying over you and for you and with you and doing so perfectly. Can you believe that? It's true. A good priest, a good pastor is an advocate, a mediator, a counselor. And so let me be a priest for you just now and offer some pastoral counseling. 
I want you to consider the thing that is worst about you. (laughs) Not to shame you. In your heart and your mind, what is the most broken and sinful thing about you? And, And again, it's not to shame you, but to assure you. Where, where is the wound the deepest? What is the brokenness? The, where is the brokenness the greatest? One of my roles as a pastor and, and even, quote unquote, a priest is to provide pastoral counseling for people. And one of the most common thing, themes I've seen as I've spoken with people over and over and over is how difficult it is for us to trust and to know that the gospel is true for us and to not give up. And to not turn to works righteousness on the one hand, which only makes us proud, or to not turn to despair on the other hand. Like, it's, it's easy to say, because there's a gap. No matter how long you've walked with Jesus, there is an enormous gap between your righteousness and Christ's righteousness. Between your holiness and, and God's holiness. There's an enormous gap still. And I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 80 years. And so when you see that gap, you and I are very tempted to fill in that gap with either our own self-righteousness, and that only will lead you to pride, which is one of the greatest sins, if not the, the, the chief sin. Or on the other hand, it will make you feel like a failure and, and that you'll just turn into despair and there's no hope for you. And both of these are wrong. Instead, when I'm talking to someone, I will say, the cross was big for you. It was big enough to cover the gap when you came to him in faith in Jesus at the moment you came to faith. And the cross is even bigger and greater today to cover your sins. The cross does not change in its enormity or size, of course, but we have to, in our hearts, let the cross get bigger and bigger for us the longer we walk with Jesus. Because the truth is, when you first start to follow Jesus, You don't really know the the fullness of how sinful and broken you are. It takes time for you to grow and mature as a person to see the depths in which our selfishness pervades the heart. And so one of the things I often tell people constantly is let the cross of Jesus get bigger for you and know that you are covered. Your self-righteousness is worth nothing. But your sin is covered in Jesus fully and completely. We're forgiven in Jesus. And our new status and identity isn't forgiven sinners, it's sons and daughters. Of course we're forgiven sinners, but your new status and identity is you're a son and you're a daughter of God. So what Hebrews is telling us is we have basis for confidence and boldness, knowing that Jesus intercedes for us. That should fill us with boldness and confidence to draw near to God. We can come to him with our prayers and petition, knowing that they are presented by the perfect son who loves us. In Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, it says this, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, meaning it was God's will that we have a high priest who's holy and he is innocent, unstained, as the sacrifices were had to be separated from sinners not not in the sense that he doesn't love sinners no he's a friend of sinners but he's not one 
and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like other high priests, to keep offering sacrifices one after the other daily, first for his own sins. He's never sinned. And then for the other people, because he did it once and for all. He offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice was so perfect, so permanent, and so wonderful and beautiful that it only took one time. Jesus did it perfectly on our behalf. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who is made perfect forever. I can't tell you how powerful it was to me to have a man like Dick Kaufman listen to me, pray for me, um, coach me. I can't tell you how valuable that was. I can't tell you how valuable it's been over the years to share, as I've shared my own struggles with other believers, particularly other brothers in the Lord who are fellow pastors, and then in turn tell me, Scott, remember, your sins are forgiven in Jesus. It's so powerful. And as amazing as that is, the reality is we have Christ himself as our advocate and our priest who is declaring over us, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, your sins are forgiven because I am the one true high priest of God. Do you believe that's true? If you don't yet believe it, please, please believe this. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is our perfect high priest. And those of us who do believe it, let us believe it more. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, in our day-to-day life here in the United States, in modern, modern life, we so seldom think of the need that we have for a priest. And we thank you for human examples that are a blessing to us, but above all, we thank you for your, your son, the perfect high priest that we need so desperately and for whom we're so thankful. Lord, as we consider a new year, as we think about our lives Would you make us more humble to follow you more carefully? Would you make us more gentle and kind, filled with the Spirit, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, that we may walk humbly with you and love you well? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.